Welcome to the Calvary Baptist Church Podcast. For more information, be sure to visit us at cbctaylorville.com. Listen now as Pastor Chad delivers this week's message. Who's experienced victory in Jesus? Anyone? Anyone experienced victory in Jesus? Can we give Jesus just a shout of praise with that? Who's experienced victory in Jesus? Come on. Come on. I tell you, there's, there's something that is incredibly special that happens when we gather, and particularly it, it happens when we gather in the same place under the banner of worship of God, and the Spirit of God touches His people, and we unite under the banner of worship. And I love moments like we just had, and now we're not just going to change the channel, we're just going to continue this mode of worship. Amen? Amen? Is it, amen? All right, good. All right, the first one was a trial run. The second one you passed, so just so you know. We were good. Hey, so something interesting happened yesterday that really connects with the message today, and I'm not making this up, but literally I was getting ready to get onto the the treadmill at the gym yesterday, and just so you know, I have a love-hate relationship with treadmills. I I, I hate treadmills, and I love getting off of them when I'm done. That's basically how, that's the love-hate thing I have going. But, but it's well-earned, and I've, I maybe have told some of you, and I, and I know that I've said this in the past, it just in previous times, but there's, the reason why I have a love-hate relationship with treadmills that is well-earned is because I have been ejected off of treadmills twice, <laughs> literally. I didn't learn my lesson the first time when I literally was ejected, just like you would see on a meme online. You're running, 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 something happens. You're not running anymore. You're sliding and then flying. That was me. And so the, the, I believe it was the second time that it happened, I was at a hotel, and it was one of those hotels with like a really small, kind of dingy, they call it a gym, but it's just a room with the treadmill, and like in two weights, it wasn't really a gym, it was more like a closet they threw some stuff in, and with mirrors, so you get to see exactly what you look like, you know, <laughs> so that whole thing. And so I'm in this little dingy gym, makeshift gym, and I'm on this treadmill, and I, I don't know why I wanted to go on this treadmill. I don't know if I had more time or maybe I was trying to work off some bad decisions that I ate the next or the day before. I'm not really sure. But I got on this treadmill and everything was fine until it wasn't fine. And then, and then my leg caught, it just slid right off of the track of the tread of the treadmill. And then it caught the thing that wasn't moving and it was a piece of plastic. Next thing I know is I'm flying backward. I, I bust the piece of plastic By the way, I'm not going to tell the hotel that I did this. I still haven't. I busted the piece of plastic, and then I launched off of the treadmill, and I think I put a little nick in the wall. So I tell you this. That's real real talk. That happened. So I have a little bit of stress every time that I get on top of a treadmill now. And because of this amazing weather that we've had here over the last forever, I can't get outside and run. So now I'm stuck of running on the treadmill. So I literally... Yesterday, I got onto the treadmill, and here's the thing that happens every time that I go to get on a treadmill. It seems like every time anyway. Every time, I'm just so reminded of the two other times that I was ejected off of the treadmill, and and I don't have the ability to recall any times that I've gone on the treadmill and successfully gotten off the treadmill. I only remember the two bad times that I got on the treadmill, and then it didn't like me anymore, and it spit me out, so to speak. See, there's an interesting connection here because there's a war that's going on in my mind. It was going on in my mind yesterday. And every single time that I go to get on a treadmill, I remember when I failed on the treadmill. I remember. 
I don't remember the successes that I had. I don't remember of all the miles that I've ran on a treadmill. I don't remember all the benefits of me being on the treadmill. All I remember is that dreary effect of me being powerless and ejected off of the back of the treadmill, hitting the wall, and then doing what you do in a situation like that. You spring up to make sure that nobody saw you. <laughs> right? That's just what you do. And that's all... That, that's, that is exactly what happens, but yet every time, why is it every time that now I go to get on a treadmill or I'm around a treadmill, I, I'm reminded not of the positive things that have happened through the treadmill, but the negatives. You see, what I've found about me, and I believe it's probably true about you because we have this common thread through all of our lives called sin, and which is all the more reason why we need to claim and live in victory in Jesus. Amen? If we're in Christ, we need to live in that victory. We need to press into who it is that he says that we are and in just embracing what it is that he says that we have as far as his promises and the power that comes by the Holy Spirit. But yet, you see, I, I naturally gravitate towards the negative. And again, I, I believe that most of us probably do too. And we think about what we've done wrong instead of all the things that we've gotten things right. And maybe, just maybe, the reason why we haven't been the catalyst and we haven't embraced that spiritual future that we've dreamt about and we've thought about, maybe we've prayed about, maybe we've, been, even, we've, we've confessed to God that we're going to embrace this, we're going to move forward in his name. Maybe the reason why we haven't been able to hit that financial place that we want or even that relational place that we want or the place in our family that we want, or maybe just physically that we want, is because instead there's a war that's going on in our mind where all we can think about is the time that we failed, and we've started to believe that there's no way that we can truly live in victory because of what we've done in the past. What we're going to see today in the passage is something that is so true to everyday life. We're going to land on the application of this passage in Ezra. And what we're going to see specifically is these people are just like us. These people who are committing to do this great work in Ezra 4, to where we're going to be, they're just like us. While they're talking about building the temple, this place of worship, that they're, they're gathered under this one principle. It's not preferences. It's not what they want to do yet it's worship, and they've gathered under that. And though the king had allowed them to go such a great distance to be able to have this opportunity, where they go is not a place of ease. Instead, it's a place of hardship. It's a place of difficulty. It's believed that they traveled approximately it would have been 530 miles if they were to go direct, or, or as my friend Edwina said, as the crow flies, it would have been about 530 miles. But more than likely, they had traveled about 900 miles. So all of this would have had them to a place of knowing that they were going to be able to build the temple, knowing they were going to be able to reoccupy the Holy Land, knowing that the rules had changed, that no longer are they going to be oppressed by an evil king. And now, even though he was a pagan king, he had changed the rules and allowed them to go back to the Holy Land. Now, they had to have been inspired. Don't you think? Things are changing. They can go back to the place where, the, where, they, where their people gathered in worship and they were free to worship. And they were inspired. But yet, 
Even in the midst of this, what we've learned so far is although they were going there by faith and God allowed all these things to happen, that they met some adversity. And the people who were there didn't like the fact that they were about to do this work. And some of the people responded with fear. And we talked about how that is, that is a, a human response. Again, that's a sin response. And maybe the reason why we don't catalyze our own future, why we're actually stuck where we are right now is because we're crippled in fear because it may be something that somebody did to us or something that we've done to ourselves. That's real, isn't it? Is that real? And yet we, we moved along and we see that, that the people, they began rebuilding the altar the foundation is laid, and there's, there's two groups of people, and they seem to be at odds with one another, and, and one group of people, they're responding in joy, and they're saying, praise God, we're going to build this altar. It's going to be amazing. Look at this foundation. It is fantastic. And there's another group of people who were stuck in the past, and they thought, and they were weeping. They were not weeping because it was joy. They were weeping because there's no, they didn't believe that there was any way that this new temple could match the beauty and magnificence of Solomon's temple. So they were stuck in the past. And now these, what started as just this joyous journey that it seemed to be God was allowing them to have an experience, all these bits of victory. Now they're starting to have some opposition. And now we're actually going to see more opposition in this passage. Let's read it together. Ezra 4, 1 through 6. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Verse 4. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people in Judah and Jerusalem. While our application is going to be about how to, to win the war of our mind, so to speak, it's going to be about how to win the war of our mind when there are these types of things that happen. There are weapons. Maybe you didn't catch it over the, the first reading of it, uh, but maybe you read ahead and maybe you've already captured all these and, and you're so well prepared just like Josh talked about. And you've actually read this passage, which is, which is amazing if you have. But I want to just tell you that there are six different things here that are weapons that are clear to see once we actually draw some attention to them. So the first one that I want us to see comes from verses 1 through 3. And that's the weapon of infiltration. The weapon of infiltration. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, Let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esardon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. 
But notice what Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel said. You have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel. This is the weapon of infiltration. These are the enemies of the people of God, and they th- they're, they're trying to be very, very keen and very cunning and just trying to infiltrate the work to stop the work that God is creating. So they don't oppose them directly. Instead, they come to them in a friendly way and saying, hey, let us join you. In other words, let us infiltrate you and let us sabotage the work from the inside. Oh, church, here's what I know about my own life. So many times Satan wants to sabotage the work of God from the inside of my mind. From the inside of my mind. Satan wants me to believe what he believes about me, and he does not want me to claim the victory that I have in Jesus Christ. He doesn't want that for me. There's another weapon that you see here. Beyond the weapon of infiltration is the weapon of discouragement. The beginning of verse 4. When the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah, to discourage, it's the weapon of discouragement. How many times have you started something and you knew that it was something you should do? Maybe it was even a God something. Maybe it was to, to again, make a decision to, to make a difference in your life or in the life of somebody else. Maybe you're committing to tithe and give offerings and to give to missions. Maybe it's to have a better marriage or to raise your kids in a godly way. It could be a bunch of different things. And how many times have you tried, 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 and yet you found this weapon of discouragement and then you simply stopped? This is real, is it not? This is, this is right from the Bible. This isn't me making things up and trying to overlay these things. This is right from the Scriptures. The Bible is so true to everyday life if you would simply read it, study it, and apply it. And you will see the, just the beauty of who God is. And you will also see what it is that God says about us. And you know... He says a lot of great things about his believers. And he says a lot of great things about our identity and our purpose and our calling. There's another weapon here. This one also in verse 4. So moving beyond, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. To make them afraid to go on building. They hired counselors to work against them. So we see the weapon of infiltration, we see the weapon of discouragement, and then we see the weapon of trouble, of trouble. They're trying to make them afraid to go on building. They're just trying to stir up trouble. Everything they're doing is just trying to create, they're using these weapons as a way to stir up trouble to stop the work of God. This is is not a work against God. God's people necessarily, this is a work against God because we in the day and age that we live and the day and age that they lived, we live in a world at war. We live in a world at war. We see, we see of war and we hear of rumors of wars, even what's going on on the other side of the world right now, and I hope you're praying about what's happening on the other side of the world. Everything with Ukraine and with Russia, I hope you're praying. Not just for the believers, but also that the war will cease. That the, that the lust for power will be diminished. 
and, the, and that the glory of God will be the renown in that area. I hope you're praying. But we see this in, in real life, that we live in a world at war. A way to help you understand this, I want to give you uh, something from the military. Some of you will be able to track with this. Some of you are not. Some of you are going to be thankful that you've never done this, just to be honest. But I want, I want to explain to you something that's called halo jumping. Halo jumping is jumping out of an airplane. So who's not excited about this already? Raise your hand. It's okay. Thank you. <laughs> who's never doing that, right? Okay. Thank you. Uh, you'll probably, even if you jump out of an airplane, you do it out here in Taylorville, this is not the type of parachuting that they do. Halo jumping means high altitude, low opening, which means that you jump from an elevation of 25 to 40,000 feet from a perfectly good airplane that's not destined to crash. And you jump, and as you leave the airplane, you don't have the parachute that, operate, that opens automatically like you'd see on TV. Instead, they just jump out of the back of an airplane, most likely, and, and you fly upwards of 120, hit maximum velocity, um, 120 up to 200 miles an hour. Sounds fun so far, doesn't it? Um, this, this makes Six Flags seem tame, really. That's what this does. So it jumps out of an airplane, flies that fast, up to 200 uh, miles an hour, and then just before you're about to splat, that you... You pull your chute at about 1,800 feet, and parachutes are made in a different way. And some of you are shaking your head. You're like, I ain't doing that. ain't ever doing that. I don't want no part of that. And yet there's some other people like me. They're like, I don't know. There's a chance. I might. If given an opportunity, I knew I would survive. That's the key, right? If I knew I would survive, that's the wonder. Why do I tell you this story? Because halo jumpers, what they do specifically the way that they jump from an airplane, they jump from an airplane of which they're, they're not detected because the altitude that they're at, and then they jump past the line of detection, and then they, de- they deploy their chute right before they hit the ground, and most of the time they do this when they're behind enemy lines. You and I, friends, live behind enemy lines. Make no mistake, we live behind enemy lines. Though we can come to church and we can smile and we can rejoice and we can have joy and yet we can have peace, but know that there is a war that is waging all around the world. And it's not just in the Ukraine and it's not just in Russia and it's not just the wars and rumors of wars. It's even a war in our own minds. There's a weapon of of infiltration. There's a weapon of discouragement. We also saw the, the weapon of trouble. Right from this passage, there's a weapon of frustration. Look at verse 5. They hired counselors to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia. It's just the, the weapon of frustration. Of like, why does it have to be this hard? Why does everything have to change for me to have victory? But why does it really have to be this hard? You know, there, I'll just be honest with you. There's times where I, I've gone to God and I've just prayed to God and I've prayed aggressive prayers to God and said, God, why does it have to be this hard? I, I've gone to God and while I've been, been a pastor and going through COVID and before COVID and after, God, after COVID and just saying, God, why does it have to be this hard? Because I'm frustrated. 
Because I know that the enemy is using his weapon of frustration against me. And in those moments, I had a decision to make, just like you have a decision to make day by day. You can either give in or you can lean in. You can either give in or you can lean into what it is that God has for you. That's an option you have. So moving, moving now, we also see the, the weapon of fatigue. Right at the beginning of verse 5, they hired counselors to work against them. They're just trying to work against them to tire them out. Just to tire them out. If they couldn't stop the work altogether and if they couldn't infiltrate the work and if they couldn't do those things, they said, here's what we're going to do. We're just going to do whatever we have to to tire them out. The weapon of fatigue. And the last weapon you see is the weapon of accusation from verse 6. At the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah in Jerusalem. So now they lodge this accusation against them. And if you were to keep reading in, at the just finishing out chapter 4, maybe you could do this later, you would see that there's personal letters that are written and they're, they're Letters that are, that are just laced with lies, talking bad about the people of God and saying they're just accusing them of a bunch of things that are simply not true. But as that has, has moved on and you see the accusations, sadly, we see at the end of chapter 4, verse 24. Let's read that, read that verse together. It says this, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill under the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. In other words, the weapons worked. The work stopped. Now you may look at this and say, well, the work stopped. Really, it's not that big of a deal. Let me give you the timeline. The work stopped for 16 years. This wasn't just a little blip on the screen and they just resumed the work. The work stopped for 16 years. And as the work stopped, God did what God does. He sent a prophet. And the prophet, he sent two prophets actually, Zechariah and he sent Haggai. Haggai, I'll read what it says in Haggai verse, or chapter 1. Verse 2 through 6. And this is what you see that the, what the people were up to for these 16 years. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. And in other words, they were making an excuse for not completing the work to begin with. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a, is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have, but have harvested little. You eat, but have never, you never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. They stopped doing God's work, and they started doing selfish work. And they started to not care about the work that had begun and the fact that it had stalled out for 16 years. Instead, they just started building their own houses and they thought, ah, it's too much trouble 
to do the work at the, at the, at the temple. It's too much work. These, these people are against it. So I'm just going to go home, and I'm just going to live my life for me. And God sent a prophet to straighten them out. God sent a prophet to straighten them out. You see, we all face these weapons. For them, they were, they were weapons to stop the, the work of God. We face these weapons internally, and more likely than not, the weapons that are waged against us are in our mind, and it is with a voice that is our own. That it's whispering our shortfalls to ourselves. Here's what I found, and if you have sermon notes, you can fill these in. Here's what I found over my years of ministry, and you've probably found this just from your own experience. We can do one of four things, and the fourth one is the best thing. The other three are not so great. In moments where we face these these weapons, in moments where we feel fatigued or accused or we feel like we're being victimized or we're just tired, here's what some people do. They just give up on their spiritual goals. They just give up. They think it's too hard. It's too hard. They just stop. They just stop. They, they stop believing that God would give them a dream. They stop believing that God would give them the desires of their heart as they are delighting in Him. They stop believing that there's a hopeful future. They stop believing that, that God truly loves them in a way that is, that is an insatiable and an incredible love. They just... They just Give up on their spiritual goals and say, you know what? That must be for somebody who's better at life than me. The second response, again, not a favorable response. Uh, some people just settle for second best. They, they settle for less than God's best. They settle for less than God's best. So here's what it looks like in real life. Maybe they have these spiritual goals and aspirations and they plug away for a long time and they're doing all these things under their own power and not the power of God and they just work and work and work and they attend church and they attend church and attend church and maybe they get involved and they start serving and maybe they're plugging in and people recognize that they have potential that's greater than what they think their potential is and they say yes and they're excited about the things of God and yet something happens along the line. There becomes a difficulty. There becomes a weapon that's, war, that's waged against them. Maybe one of the six that we just mentioned a couple of minutes ago, and then they just settle for less than God's best. So instead of serving God, they just start attending church. They just attend. They don't want to make a difference in other people's lives. And then it just becomes about behavior management, behavior modification. They just come to church and they put a face on, and you're actually settling for less than God's best. It's so easy to do. The third thing, again, not a favorable thing, but the third thing a lot of people do when they're faced with these challenges and they're just beaten down with the weapons that we've talked about is they just simply blame God or God's leaders because they simply don't know what to do. So because they've been trying to live under their own power, been empowered by the flesh, as what you would read in Galatians 5, they're, they're just trying to live by the flesh and their fleshly desires and they're not living by the Spirit is what, spirit, what, what followers of Jesus are supposed to do and we're, we're called to do and commanded to do. Instead, in these moments, you live by, by 
your own flesh, and you just start blaming God and say, you know what, God, it's your fault. I did all these things for you. I attended, I served, I gave. It didn't matter, God. You're the one to blame. Or maybe we don't have the, the boldness to blame God. Instead, we try, and, we try and blame God's leaders that way to let ourselves off of the hook. Because we don't know who to blame, and we're not going to blame ourselves, and we're not going to blame God. How can we blame Almighty God? Instead, we just look for a godly leader or a spiritual leader, and we start blaming them. It must be their fault. They're the one who preached that message. They're the one who, they're the one who gave me that counsel. They're the one who spent that time with me. They're the one who shared God's word with me. They're the one who I was serving with in that ministry. It must be their fault. Easy traps. Easy traps. It's easy to give up on your spiritual goals. It's, it's super easy to settle for second best or settle for less than God's best. It's super easy to blame God and God's leaders. The fourth one takes a lot of courage, but you'd be glad if you did it. And this is the fourth on your, your sheet is this. Cling to the truth. Cling to the truth. Cling to the truth. And, and I want to... In this message with this. It's a way to silence all of the, the weapons that I've talked about. It's the, it's the way to silence the inner critic that resides within our minds. It's a way to, to silence that, 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 that it seems like alter ego that we could maybe believe that says negative things about us. There's one verse with profound implications. And it's not found in Ezra. Because what we see is there's, that's not a happy ending so far, is it? The work stalled. All the excitement is nullified. The exiles found some enemies. Instead, I want to get our application from James 4, 7. And this is what it says. Submit yourselves then to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. And I know it sounds too good to be true. I know you're like, I need some more. I need some more. I need some more. I, I get it. And yet, in these moments, we want to make things a lot more complicated than what they need to be. The way to, to silence that inner critic is by submitting yourselves to God, even if there's a part in your mind that says you need to submit to yourself and resist God. Instead, we need to first submit. The order of this is critical, by the way. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He has to if you claim the name and power of Jesus Christ. Because Satan knows that he is already beaten. Amen. He knows that he's beaten. So when we claim the name and power of Jesus Christ, he is crippled and he simply cannot reside in that place. And yet for us, we can't go into our feelings. We can't go into our emotions. We can't go back into our mind. We need to cling to the truth and we need to submit ourselves to God. Even if we feel like we're right. Even if we're convinced that they're wrong. Even if in the moment we want someone or something to validate how we feel, the first place, the first person we need to go to is submitting ourselves to God. But what have you, what have you been doing? It's a good question, isn't it? Where have you been going? 
When you're faced with the struggle and those, the weapons are being waged against you, what do you do first? Because what you do first says a lot about what you believe in. Do you go to God first? Or do you find a distraction first? Do you call a friend or text a friend somewhere to validate your emotions? Or do you go to a Christ-like friend who, yes, will validate your emotions, but also help you cling to the truth? Where do you go when you're faced with these challenges? Who do you submit to? I love how Jesus said in Matthew 6, 13, he said in the... In the model prayer, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's saying, God, don't just, don't lead us into temptation, but, but deliver us from the evil one. Where do you go? What do you do? Do you just give up on your goals and say, well, I'm just not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I... I just simply don't know enough. I just don't have enough time. Do you settle for less than God's best? Do you just start playing the blame game? It must be somebody else's fault why I'm mad. It must be somebody else's fault why I'm tired. It must be somebody else's fault why I feel accused. It must be somebody else's fault. What do you do? Where do you go? It says a lot about what you believe in. Or do you cling to the truth? I invite you to stand. It's time to get real for a couple of minutes. When you face hardship, long-lasting fatigue, feeling frustrated, feeling accused. What do you do? Where do you go? Are you of the, the, the type of people who just simply blame God and say, you know what, I'm done with all this spiritual stuff? Are you the type of person that settles and you just... You just don't pursue anything great anymore. You just kind of live lukewarm. Lukewarmness doesn't work out really well. Read Revelation 3. There was a church in Ephesus that was known as being lukewarm. They weren't hot, weren't cold. They were just the compliant and complacent. That's settling. What do you do? Where do you go? Who do you talk to? Do you go to the king of kings and you submit yourself to God? And by which resisting the devil, knowing that he'll flee from you? Or do you do something else? I invite you to close your eyes, bow your heads. I want you to ask, I want you to invite the spirit of God to ask you right now or to to reveal to you right now what it is that you do and where did you go? And if, if the Spirit would prompt you to move, to come up and pray, 
or the Spirit would prompt you to pray in your seat. Maybe, just maybe, the Spirit of God would prompt you to go across the room to tell somebody you're sorry. Because maybe you've been using that person as a band-aid for your issues. And it's not working. And it's just your way of settling. Spirit of God, move in this place. Allow us the boldness and courage to do what it is that you're wanting us to do. To say what it is that you want us to say. And to be who it is that you want us to be. Father, I pray for the person who who they would say for years that what they've done is they've just given up on their spiritual goals and maybe they give up a long time ago. God, grant them the grace of repentance right now where, they, where they're standing just to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm turning over a new leaf. I'm turning away from my sinful past, and I'm leaning towards life. The same type of life that you talked about, Jesus, in John 10.10. 10. The life to the full. Grant them the boldness and courage to do what it is that you want them to do, God. Spirit of God, speak to the person who's been settling for a long time. They're flying under the radar. They're just comfortable and compliant. They're lukewarm. God, stir their heart. Allow it to go deeper than their brain. Let this not just be some bit of logic that just lands in their brain and brings about no true change. But God, let it go that that amazing distance from brain to heart so that their heart would be equipped by the Spirit and stirred by the Spirit to do what it is that you want them to do. Father, for the person, maybe they blamed you for a long time for how their life's turned out, how their marriage has turned out, maybe how their previous marriage turned out, how their kids have turned out. Grant them the grace of repentance to to do what it is that you want them to do, to say what it is that you want them to say. That in this moment, they can make a decision for you to say, I'm not going to blame you anymore, God, for what I've done to my life. Instead, I am in this moment, I'm going to submit myself to you, God. Because when I submit myself to you, I find the lifeline of love. I find the pathway of peace. And I find the highway of hope. Stir us today. Do what you want in this place so that we can become who it is that you want us to become. We pray in Jesus' name.